Hey, this is Pastor Matt from Missio Day Fellowship in Oak Creek, Wisconsin. I'm thankful that you found our sermons, and I hope that they're a way to encourage you in your walk with Christ. However, this sermon was given in the context of my local church and for those that God has entrusted to me. If you are in our area, I want to encourage you to come on a Sunday to worship with our body. And if you're not in this area, these sermons are a great tool for supplementing your walk with Christ, but no means a substitute for your local church. You need to submit yourself to a faithful Bible-teaching church and shepherd in your area. Well, please do open your Bibles up to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6, we've been working our way through this gospel chapter by chapter, verse by verse for about two and a half years at this point. And it has been a slow, but I think incredibly insightful study. And after about two and a half months, we will finally finish your Lord willing Jesus' sermon this morning. He is standing on the side of this mountain. He has been giving instruction to these many people who are viewing themselves to be in some capacity a disciple of Jesus. And so this morning we see the pinnacle of this sermon. And so before this great multitude of people, he begins to lay out some very important truth. And this is what we've been looking at as a church. You'll have to remember back to a few months ago when we began the Sermon on the Mount, but you'll remember that most of the people here had basically come for the show. They understand Jesus to be a very great worker of miracles. They've heard the stories. They've heard the rumors. They've become intrigued with all the hype that's been surrounding this very mysterious figure. And so they came for the healing. They came for the casting out of demons. They came to be cleaned of all of their unclean spirits. Of course, all that we saw in verse 18. And so then after Jesus does what they've come for him to do, Jesus then begins to do what he wants to do, which is to preach. In fact, for all that Jesus was, he was first and foremost a preacher. That is why the Father had sent him. That was to be the hallmark of his ministry leading up to that important work of the cross. So in chapter 4 and verse 43, Jesus saying that I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also. And why? Well, for, so for this reason, for I was sent for this purpose. So he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. People have a lot of thoughts on Jesus. People have been taught a lot of things about him. People have developed formed uh, and even unformed opinions about him. But if you want to be closest to him and understand what he is truly about, then you have to understand that Jesus was a preacher. Many think that he was just about the sick, just about love, just about helping people in need, and so on and so forth. And certainly all of that he was. He was not less than that. But the dominant feature of his life in ministry, again, apart from the cross and the resurrection, was preaching. He was a preacher. He had come to deliver a very definitive message, to give a very radical call. He came to declare an extremely exclusive message about the pathway to salvation and to let a sinful world know that he had come to seek and to save the lost. 
And so over the past few months, we've had the opportunity to sort of marinate in this very prominent and well-known, but also very misunderstood teaching of Jesus. Luke's, as you know, is the shorter version. Matthew's is the longer, more expanded version of the Sermon on the Mount, covers chapters five through seven in his gospel. But this has been a rich and, and I hope compelling study for you. And this morning we come to this final portion, which is essentially his call to this group of people who are now self-identifying as disciples and followers of him. This is his call to examine themselves. And that is the essence of this passage. It is a call for you and I to examine our own lives, to analyze what you believe and where you have truly placed your hope, where you have built your spiritual house, so to speak, and to examine the foundation upon which that house sits. And to examine as to whether or not, as Jesus is going to bring out for us, but to examine as to whether or not, if in reality, you are truly, fully devoted to him. Fully devoted. In fact, that is the title of my sermon, and because that is the central message of this final passage to this very large crowd of people who would view themselves as disciples. And because to be anything less than fully devoted is to be no true disciple at all. And that is exactly what Jesus is going to bring out for us this morning. And so before we get into it, let me read here for you the passage, which is verses 46 through 49, just four short short verses, but unbelievably important. So again, Luke chapter 6, verses 46 through 49. Here is what Luke records of Jesus under the inspiration of the Spirit. He said, so why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? For everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts on them, I will show you whom he is like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid a foundation on the rock. And when a flood occurred and the torrent burst against that house, could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who has heard and has not acted is like a man who built a house on the ground without any foundation And the torrent burst against it, and immediately it collapsed, and the ruin of that house was great. Let me me begin with a question. If you had to give an answer, why do you think that the majority of people in the world, statistically speaking, and even a majority of people in the history of the world, are religious and spiritual people. What would be your answer to that question? And because that is the reality, most people in the world and almost all the people of the history of the world are religious, spiritual people. In fact, according to the Pew Research, right now about 31% are professing to be affiliated with Christianity. 24% are Muslim. 15% of the world are Hindu. 7% are Buddhist, 6% adhere to some form of folk religion, 0.2% are Jewish, 0.8% some other form of 
institutionalized religion. And so only 16% of the world have identified as unaffiliated and the majority of whom still subscribe to some form of spirituality. And so they might not be part of some formal institutionalized religion, but they're still spiritual in practice, some form of spirituality. And so I would say at a conservative level that well over 90% of all people in our modern day are religious, spiritual people. And that is a staggering number. It is a very small number who hold to some form of atheism. That is an extreme outlier. And so why is that? Why do people find themselves drawn to religion and and spirituality, and especially of an institutionalized form? Well, I would submit to you that the reason ultimately is because almost everyone believes in some form of cosmic justice, some form of an afterlife, and and for which they're going to have to give an account. And so the answer to the question is, and just a quick read of the polls as far as I'm concerned, is essentially because everyone wants heaven. Now, of course, there will always be people who answer that they want hell or some form of eternal destruction or nihilism, but that is rare and that is frankly bizarre. In fact, that is rather irrational, and so it is uncommon, statistically speaking. But the existence of of religion in the world thrives and has always thrived, if you've studied world religion, because people want to go to heaven. And in terms of whatever they understand heaven to be. Religion thrives on the idea that there is something for you in the next life that is somehow better or perhaps worse than your current existence. And so, of course, most people want the one that is better. And so it's usually along the lines of something painless, it's joyful, it it is free of difficulty, free of trial, free of sadness and loss. And so it's just this sort of never-ending bliss of the good life. For Buddhists who basically contemplate themselves into some other plane. It's this thing called nirvana. For the Greeks, it was crossing the silver river of the mystic Greek pantheon. For New Agers, it's this sort of light at the end of the tunnel. For Islamic martyrs, as you know, it's the promise of 72 virgins in paradise. For many people, it's just this never-ending existence of their favorite hobby. Maybe for others, it's being able to eat whatever they want to eat and not gain weight. I've heard that one. For some people, it's sleeping. For other people, it's camping. Whatever it might be, heaven is the fulfillment of your greatest personal expectation. And so the key is to just be good enough now or do certain religious or spiritual practices now, but so that when you stand before God, whatever that is, or he is, or she is, or it is, you will have some kind of argument for why he, she, or it owes you your greatest life. 
I think most people live in a state of tremendous guilt. I think people live trapped inside of themselves with a lot of pain caused by personal secrets of past sin and past shame. And so whatever it is, they need to, they need to work it off through some form of atonement, some form of religious practice or payment that'll hopefully outshine the wickedness of their own secret life. And that is religion. In fact, there's even meaning in that. There's a sense of relief in that. There's even a certain level of joy and peace that can come from that. And because you're making up for that which you think has been the source of your secret guilt. But regardless, I think that people live essentially in a state of perpetual guilt. And if not, it's because they've found a way to sort of numb themselves. And so they need some kind of mechanism to atone for the guilt that they bear. And so whenever life is over and they have to face that cosmic judge or they have to stand before the scales of karma and the balance of the universe, they'll have some kind of evidence or weight that'll tip the scale to get them into heaven. And because their good deeds have outweighed their bad. In fact, even in Christianity, most people view their life in light of some kind of divine scale where if their good deeds can outweigh their bad deeds, then God's going to let them in. And so they go to church, they do good things, they might even put money in the plate. But if they can get to church more times out of the month than not, then all of that combined will hopefully tip the scales in their favor. But when you boil it all down, the driving motive in all of this is that most people want heaven. That is the issue. They're uncertain if they're going to get it, and so they'll work really hard to try and stay as clean as possible to try and make certain, but they want heaven, and so religion or following a certain set of spiritual and religious prescriptions is the mechanism through which they believe heaven will come. And so people do all sorts of things and become part of all kinds of religions, searching, wondering, digging deep within themselves to try and figure it out. And because they're presuming that truth is somehow found within. And so most people think that once they've discovered what they understand to be the truth, they then believe that their religion is the religion. And so they have sort of the corner on ultimate truth. Now, they might not speak ill of your religion, perhaps, or your personal truth. And because we live in a postmodern, pluralistic, subjective, syncretistic society, and which, by the way, is not the majority of the world or the history of the world. That's just our modern Western culture. But they won't necessarily speak ill of your truth so long as you don't try and push it on them. And so while they might admit with their mouth that all ways and all religions are equally valid in their heart of hearts, they practice what they practice because they think that in some capacity, it is the way to heaven. Or they'd be practicing some other form of the truth. 
And of course, there are all kinds of exceptions and nuances to this. And depending on who you talk to, they're going to have their own version and their own spin on this. But when you boil it all down, according to the, the polls, at least, the driving motive for all spirituality and religion is that hope of heaven. Eternal bliss. And if not, at least the hope of passing some kind of judgment to be let into whatever it is that we're let into. Well, I've been telling you that the Sermon on the Mount has been a passage in which you can examine your own life to see if you are on that correct path. If you have found the truth and therefore possess the hope of heaven. In many religions, as you know, are very far from heaven. Person might be deeply religious, they might be spiritually devoted, they might be fastidiously devoted, they believe in God, they might strive for a morally pure life, but if they're on the wrong path, or to use the illustration of Jesus here, if their house has been built on that faulty foundation, they will not stand in the judgment. And so there are many religions and spiritual paths that are very far from heaven. And yet at the same time, there are also some and certainly many people who are very close to heaven. In fact, Jesus told the scribe in Mark chapter 12 and verse 34, after answering one of Jesus' questions correctly, and because he knew the right facts, he knew a semblance of the truth, but Jesus told him that he was not far from heaven. Mark writes, when Jesus saw that he, the scribe, had answered intelligently, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And so evidently, there are some who are closer than others. There are some who are near the path or perhaps even walking down the path. They're on their way. They're getting closer to the truth. There are many who have heard of Jesus, understood things about Jesus, have studied the teachings of Jesus, have astutely examined the life of Jesus. They have even called him Lord. They regard him as the son of God. They even understand their own sin and therefore what Jesus requires. And so as Jesus says, they are very close to the kingdom. They are close to getting into heaven. And what I want you to understand this morning, and because it is critical to your eternal state, but what I want you to understand is that being close, hear this, being close to heaven is not sufficient. And because being close to the kingdom or even understanding of very many things about the kingdom and even understanding to some degree who Jesus is, as described it here in Mark chapter 12, that is not the same thing. Hear this. That is not the same thing as being in the kingdom. Being close is not in. Perhaps more tragic on that final day of judgment and those who were far off from the kingdom and discovering that they weren't even close will be that deeply shattering reality that will come crashing in on so very many. And that is that while there are many who right now think that they're in, 
and will have the utmost confidence as they stand before their maker and judge, they will only come to find out that very tragic truth that they were only close. Matthew chapter 7, in that final portion of Matthew's version of the Sermon on the Mount, he describes this in some vivid detail with that frightening passage that you all know well, where Jesus makes this explicit. He says in verse 22 of Matthew chapter 7, which is the parallel passage to our passage here in Luke this morning, he says there, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And many will say to me, and that is the key word, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then notice, Jesus doesn't debate that they did any or all of those things. Verse 23, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. So depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. There are many who will assume that they're about to enter heaven, and because they thought that they were in And they had a spiritual resume. Think about this. Jesus describes these people in this passage as having a far greater spiritual resume than you or I, perhaps. They prophesied, they cast out demons, they performed many miracles, and in Jesus' name, and yet Jesus himself says that there will be many who will find out on that day that very tragic truth that they were only close. and that Jesus never knew them. And so if I can capture your thoughts here this morning, what I want you to understand, and because it is the message of this passage, is that being near to the kingdom is not the same thing as being in the kingdom. So look with me to verse 46. Jesus states, so why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Now remember, he is talking to a group of professing disciples. He's talking to those who essentially call themselves Christians. He's talking to those who regard themselves as followers of Jesus. After all, they've come to hear them teach. They've come to give their ear to what you and I would just call Christian instruction, Furthermore, Jesus himself even recognizes that they call him Lord. It's pretty close. In fact, the word Lord, kurios, means master or owner. They are ones to whom you submit. They are ones to whom you esteem as high and over you. And they don't just call him Lord, but notice they address him with the double vocative. He is Lord, Lord, where the doubling here reveals intimacy, reveals devotion and even exclusivity. And so in a certain way, Jesus understands that these people are exceedingly 
close. They call him Lord. They recognize him to be, to a very significant degree, who he is. These are people who are unwilling to call Caesar Lord, and because they recognize Jesus as Lord. Something, by the way, which would have been very significant in the Roman world, that could potentially get you killed. And so that's pretty good. These are not people trapped in the cult of emperor worship, trapped in that dead legalistic religion of Judaism. These are people who have come after Jesus. They've come to hear him teach. They've come to be made well, again, verse 18, and they call him Lord. In fact, calling Jesus Lord is that crucial profession which must be made, right? 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 3, Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Luke chapter 12 and verse 8, And I say to you, everyone who confesses me before men, the Son of Man will confess him also before the angels. 1 John 2.23, whoever denies the Son does not have the Father, but the one who confesses the Son has the Father. Or perhaps most definitive, Romans chapter 10 and verse 9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. That is a promise. And so it seems... Confessing Jesus as Lord is not merely close, but a pretty good sign that you're in. And so the confession of Jesus as Lord is integral to true salvation. You must recognize who he is. You must recognize that he is not just one option among many. You must recognize that he's not someone to just be intrigued with or merely fascinated by. That one always makes me nervous. He is not some romantic lover or sappy boyfriend who is always there for you when you're feeling alone or struggling with the trials of life. He is not your homeboy, as the old t-shirt used to say. Rather, he is Lord, and he is that sovereign Lord of the universe, and therefore not one to be trifled with. He is Lord. He is master of everything, whether you acknowledge him or not. And so when you do acknowledge his lordship and you do acknowledge him for who he is and call him Lord, that's a pretty good sign. This is a very good indication that you hear this, that you are very close to the kingdom. And yet, apparently, at the very same time, potentially in a very dangerous place. Because again, to be close could indeed prove to be deadly, and because being close to the kingdom is to perhaps presume that you are in. And according to Matthew chapter 7, is why so many are right now under a very tragic delusion. For he says, not everyone who calls me Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom. 
And so Jesus poses the question here as to why they're calling him that. And because for Jesus, evidently, it is not the mere profession of him as Lord that constitutes saving faith or proves that you're truly viewing him as Lord, but rather notice, he says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, but do not do what I say? In other words, the bellwether for Jesus and the evidence of being in the kingdom is not your profession in mere words or vague internal sentimental belief, but it's always made known, and hear this, it is always made known by your obedience. Because if kurios, Lord, means master, then it implies that you are his doulos. Slave. And slaves always do what their master says. This is why Paul, in the beginning of every single one of his letters, introduces himself as an apostle, but also a doulos, a slave of Jesus Christ. We translate it as bondservant, but that is very domesticated. It is the Greek word for slave. If Jesus is Lord, Master, Kurios, you are slave. In fact, the only way a slave would not do what his master said is if he wasn't really their master. In fact, notice verse 47. He says, everyone who comes to me and hears my word and acts on them. That is key. And acts on them, I will show you whom he is like. And this is a very important verse, and because... There's a progression here with three very critical verbs. Notice you've got come, hear, and then act. And the point is that all three must be present for true salvation. All three must be present if indeed you are truly viewing Jesus as Lord. And so the tragedy is that most professing Christians who regard Jesus as Lord dwell within the realm of these first two. And again, I say most Christians because Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7 that there will be many that will be met with those shocking words of rejection on that day. In fact, you all know verse 13 of that chapter where he states those very difficult words. He says, strive to enter by the narrow gate. And why? Well, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction and there are many who enter it. But the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life and there are few who will find it. Either he's speaking truth or falsehood there. And so the same concept is true here as well. There are many who notice come to Jesus. In fact, just like these disciples on this mountain, many come to him because he's got something to offer, verse 18. There are many who come to Jesus and because they're hoping that he will perhaps solve something for them, solve their sadness, their sickness, their marriage, their loneliness, wayward children, addictions, anxieties, depressions, whatever it might be. Many come to Jesus for many different things, but merely because they think that he's got something to fix it. 
fact, I just saw that bumper sticker again the other day that I despise to, quote, try Jesus. It's a vile little thing. As if the Lord of the universe is just one more option for therapy. And so many come to Jesus because he's yet one more option on the spiritual or religious menu, and so perhaps he might work for me. Perhaps he can be my personal therapeutic coping mechanism. And so many come to Jesus for many different things. Others want power. Others want money. We see that one big time when we travel to Africa. Others just want a little more happiness. But perhaps most troubling to me at a personal level is this second category here with this second verb. There are many who come to Jesus, but there are also many who come, but then love to hear his words. And this is a problem. And because these ones are even closer than the ones who merely come. These are ones who come and hear. Again, there are many who come to Jesus and then quickly find out that he's not promised to solve what they've demanded that he solve, and so they quickly move on to something else. They have no interest in actually hearing, no interest in groaning the truth. They have no interest in studying the scriptures. They have very little time to submit themselves under the faithful instruction of the word to begin that very slow process of conforming their life and their heart into the image of Jesus Christ, into the image of one whom they claim to follow. And and because they've come for some other reason. And then when Jesus doesn't fix their issue, and because, again, he's never promised to do that in the first place, they move on to something else. But there are many who come and love to hear his word. And what we should understand about these kinds of people is that they are equally not in the kingdom, just as much as those in that first category who are not in the kingdom. And again, one is perhaps closer to the kingdom because they also like to hear the words of Christ and so they stick around They perhaps become part of a local church. But I'd also say that they're in a far more dangerous position. And because being closer to the kingdom, but not yet in the kingdom, means that perhaps you're under a far greater delusion. And so there are many who love to debate all the nuances and all the various complexities of theology, There are many who love to memorize scripture, attend Bible studies, read books, listen to podcasts, listen to sermons, post all kinds of memes, and because they love the words of Jesus, but the problem is that they've never gotten around to submitting themselves under those words. They have no real interest in doing those words. In fact, that is the key word. Notice verse 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts on them, I will show you whom he is like. Now, let me clarify something here for you just to cover my bases. 
He is not teaching that your obedience is what somehow earns your salvation for you. That would be religion. Rather, he is saying that your obedience to Jesus, catch this, your obedience to Jesus is what proves that you're already in. In other words, your obedience gives the evidence that Jesus is, in fact, your Lord. It gives the evidence that you are right now, present tense, in his kingdom. Again, a slave only does the will of his master. And so if you're doing what he has told you, then he is your master. He is truly your Lord. But if you do the will of another, or perhaps just do your own will, then somebody else is your master, or you are your own master. And so this is not a message of salvation by good religious works. Rather, this is a message that says the truly saved will always produce good works. That is to say, they do what Jesus has commanded, which necessarily results in good fruit. And so Jesus says, it is not those who come to me, It is not those who come to me and listen to me, but it is those who come, listen, and then do what I say that show themselves to be in the kingdom and therefore truly converted. Which is why I keep saying that this is all about self-examination. So in many ways, a very simple message, but it is crucial to understanding the nature of saving faith. True faith always produces good works. And so notice he gives an illustration of this, verses 48 and 49. And so he says that if you're one of these who comes and hears and does, then I will show you what you are like. And so he says in verse 48, notice, he is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid a foundation on the rock And when a flood occurred, the torrent burst against that house and could not shake it. And why? Well, because it had been well built. Now, this is an illustration of salvation. A lot of people use this verse for a lot of different things, but this is illustrating that final judgment. In fact, remember, this is harmonizing with uh, Matthew's account where it's very clear that he is talking about the judgment. And so this is a picture that illustrates a person's ability to stand firm in that day. And so the flood or the torrent here represents God's judgment, represents God's scrutiny of the sinner. This is his examination. This is his final trial of you, so to speak. And so he says that the one whose house has been well built, where the house here represents your spiritual life and the state of your soul, but the one who has a house that's been well built will stand in the day of testing. But on the other hand, verse 49, notice it is the exact opposite. He states, but the one who has heard and has not acted, so there it is again, the one who has heard and not done what I say is like a man who built a house on the ground without any foundation and the torrent burst against it and immediately it collapsed and the ruin of that house was great. And so the the point of the contrast here is obvious. This is a tale of two houses, two builders, 
Again, the house represents your spiritual life. One has been built on a firm foundation, the other on sand. And so when the storm comes or the pressure hits, one stands, but the other crumbles swiftly into destruction. Just a few observations about this. First of all, from a superficial perspective, think about this, but both of the houses would essentially look the same, right? They're both standing. They both represent some kind of work. They both evidence that some kind of religious or spiritual construction has taken place. But the point is that you can't tell the stability of that house or upon what that house has been built until the flood comes. In other words, at a a superficial level, that is at a level of coming and hearing and talking, it is a challenge to tell whose house has been built on a solid foundation and whose house has been built on sand. In other words, the point of Jesus is that you will not find out ultimately until the judgment. It requires that flood. It requires that torrent to come upon you to determine who is genuine and who is false. Now, in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, this this flood here, again, has to refer to that final judgment. There's very little debate about that. But most agree that at a sort of day-to-day level, these torrents here could also be understood as a reference to trials or the difficulties of life. And the reason for that is because if you're going to stand firm in the day of judgment, then certainly you will have stood firm in the day of trial during times of testing. And especially because trials always have a way of revealing who is genuine and and who is false. We know that trials often are God's ordained mechanism through which he refines the faith and causes one who's truly converted to persevere, but they're also his mechanism for revealing who is false. And so I think it's certainly appropriate to apply the illustration here to the hardships and the trials of life. And and so in that sense, then how do you think about this? How would you apply this? When life is fine and the sun is shining, so to speak, and there's no real pressure, there's no real testing upon your house, again, they both appear on the outside to look the exact same. And so that is the confession. That is the coming to Jesus and hearing his words Both kinds of people are equal at this point. This is that ability to say that Jesus is Lord when it perhaps does not yet cost you something. When, for example, there's been no trial that's yet tested your faith, there's been no suffering, there's been no loss, there's been no hardship, no pressure from a sinful, broken world to test the genuineness of your confession. And so your house stands, it appears to be firm. But for the one who's built their house on the sand, the moment that hardship comes, notice he uses the word immediately here. So the moment that hardship comes or life gets difficult or shame or persecution arise or a great challenge comes into your life, perhaps at a personal level, it quickly becomes evident where the foundation of your house rests. And because again, trials always have this way of refining those who are truly of Christ, but revealing those who are not. And that might actually be of some encouragement to you. 
if you've endured a trial or you're still enduring a trial and you're doing it faithfully, that's the key word, you're enduring faithfully, then that should be a cause of great hope for you. And, and even if you don't necessarily endure well and you feel like you're just barely hanging on most of the time, it doesn't really matter because the point is that you're still enduring, right? You're still seeking to obey the one whom you call Lord and, and not merely as you hear his words, or as you follow your own desire, rather you're submitting yourself, you're submitting your trial under his lordship. And so when the trial comes, again, whether it's, it's a family issue, relationship, work, sickness, disease, whatever it might be, in those times, the question quickly becomes, do you do what Jesus has commanded you to do, but in the midst of that difficulty? That is the question. In fact, anyone who's done any kind of counseling, especially during times of crisis, you understand this. There are those who, when the trial hits, they struggle. More than that, they are rocked to their core. But it doesn't take long for them to once again reorient after that initial shock to once again be controlled by that very critical question of, despite the circumstance, what is it that honors God in this moment? And that is always what controls the one who is truly following Jesus Christ. It will always come back to what honors Christ in the trial, despite the fact that honoring Christ might not solve the issue. Or that it might not just cause that trial to go away, or that obedience to Christ might in fact make your trial harder. There are those who, when the trial hits, might come to Jesus, but again, only because they think that he has promised to fix it, which is a lie. Fix the stress, fix the anxiety, the marriage, the children, whatever the issue might be, but then when God doesn't fix it, and because that is not the promise of the gospel, they then move on to try and find something else at will. But those who understand that following Christ is not about God fixing your situation necessarily in the here and the now, but about honoring God in the midst of your situation, though difficult it may be, these are the ones who have built their house upon the rock. And so they stand firm, though it's hard. They will not fall, ultimately. In fact, notice the imagery here, verse 49. He says, the one who stands is the one who has dug deep, which, of course, implies that this is not necessarily easy. They don't just take the first method of spirituality. That sounds good to their ears. They don't keep searching for what they feel is the best option that'll produce the quickest and easiest results that they desire. Rather, they're willing to do the hard and slow work of getting down to the rock, but so that their house will stand. But the one who builds on sand wants it easy. They want their quick desire now. They want the quick fix. 
But the one who wants their house to stand in that day of testing understands that the gospel of Jesus Christ is not a superficial work. And so notice the foundation of your house or the foundation of your entire spiritual life, if you will, must be one that is sitting upon this rock. And so everyone, whether they know it or not, are building a house. That is the point. Every single person has a perspective on ultimate truth, a perspective on religion and spirituality, and so they're building some kind of house. But that is, that is not the issue. Doesn't matter how religious or spiritual or prayerful or thankful or generous you are, rather the question is, upon what has your hope for heaven been built? It is not a question of what does the house look like on the outside or how we can make this house appear to everybody else, but rather what is the foundation? Like this is why a majority of the people in the history of the world are religious spiritual beings. We all have houses. We're all spiritual. We're all religious. We all possess a soul that's had eternity placed on it, according to the writer of Ecclesiastes. But the concern for Jesus here is upon what does your house sit? And so he says that to stand firm in the judgment, you must build your house upon the rock. And so that, of course, begs the question, so what is this rock? What is this firm foundation? Some of you, Jesus. I got the answer. Well, in one sense, as, as you know well, there are several times throughout the scriptures, especially in the New Testament, that Jesus is referred to as the rock, most prom- prominently 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 4, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 8. Sometimes he's also referred to as the cornerstone upon which the rest of that foundation is laid, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 7. And so he is that solid rock upon which all true salvation must be built. And so in one sense, this is a reference to the gospel. This is in reference to that exclusive path of salvation, which is found in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. And so if you're trying to gain access to God somehow or get yourself into heaven apart from Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone, the point is that you are building your house on sand, as Matthew would render it in his version. And so when the torrent of God's judgment and fury comes upon you, your house will not be safe. You will be swept away. But if you build your hope for heaven upon Jesus Christ, that rock and chief cornerstone of the church, then when God's inevitable judgment is cast against you, and because it will be cast against every single one of us, but when that fury comes, you cannot be shaken. And again, because your house has been built upon an immovable foundation. And it is not about the strength of your own spirituality. It's not about the strength of your own house. It's not even about the strength of your own faith, but this is about the strength of the one upon whom you've built your house. This is about the rock. And so in one sense, this is a reference to the person of Jesus Christ. It's in reference to his message. It's in reference to the gospel. It is in reference to his death and burial and resurrection on behalf of the sinner. But in the context, the immediate antecedent of the illustration notice is in reference not primarily to Jesus himself, but in a more accurate sense, notice it is speaking of his words. Verse 47. 
Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts on them, I will show you whom he is like. And so notice the one whose foundation is firm is the one who acts in accord to Jesus' words. Repeated again in a negative sense in verse 49, the one who has heard and does not act, heard what? Heard his words. But the one who has heard and does not act is the one who is not building upon a rock. In other words, to build your spiritual house and to lay its foundation upon a solid rock is to be a person who is building their life. And catch this, you are building your life for all intents and purposes on the word of God. The word of God. And that is the critical point of the passage. There are many well-meaning Christians who perhaps made a seemingly genuine profession of faith, but they have absolutely no idea in any true or pure sense what it means to then be a disciple. Their life has never been built on the word of God in any true sense and in every aspect. And so they don't think biblically. They might believe it's the word of God in some undefined way or some intellectual way, but it's never been that dominating grid through which they've learned to interpret every aspect of life and filter every aspect of their decision-making and thinking. And perhaps because they've never been truly taught that word. The word has been so watered down for them, and so there is no stability. And so when you begin to press them to try and help them. The word of God is not actually controlling their thoughts and their decision-making and how to deal with life and how to deal with all the trials and the hardships of life. And so the life is just this sort of vague, superficial, quasi-Christian spirituality. And so when the trial comes and the house immediately collapses, as he says at the end of verse 49, the ruin is great. And so there are those who come to Christ and are even willing to hear his words, but it is impossible for them to rightly act upon them and because they've never been faithfully taught them. And so when the flood comes, either in a trial of life or in that final judgment, the state of the soul crumbles because they've been building on sand. Which, of course, is why last week's passage is so critical. A lot of this comes down to the faithfulness of teachers who will actually teach the Word of God and be unbending and unapologetic in declaring its truth. But more to the point here, there are many who come and then hear the Word faithfully taught. There are many who do hear the Word faithfully taught, but then as he says in verse 49, they do not act in accord to what they have heard. And I have seen this many, many times. Some of you have seen this many times. Someone comes to Jesus. Someone is even willing to hear his words, but there was never a true submission to that word. There was never a decision in their mind that they're going to submit their life and their heart in the fullest sense possible under that word. Now, they make a profession. They claim to be following the words of Christ. But when the day of hardship came, it only proved where they were building their house. They were not actually following his words. And that is the question that this passage is designed to provoke in us. How are you building your house? Upon what are you building your house? Is it truly 
Jesus Christ and his word. And I tell you the truth that it absolutely requires trial to discern that. And in a very tragic way for many, it'll take the final judgment to discern that. And so what is the mark that your profession of Jesus as Lord is genuine? Well, it's not that you come to him. It's not that you hear his word only and hear it faithfully taught, but it is that you also obey those faithful words. I've been doing this long enough to know that many are intrigued with Christianity and even call themselves Christians. But the moment that you start to press, especially during times in which a hard decision for obedience is required, But the moment that you start to press and instruct with the word of God and the word of God alone and actually call a person to true biblical faithfulness, it does not take long to discover where they're building their house. I've seen some endure some of the most difficult trials of their life that have lasted for years. And I've seen others utterly collapse the moment that you point out one aspect of their sin and call them to faithfulness or the moment that even the slightest hardship strikes their life. And that is the difference. The one who is genuinely converted and therefore building their house upon the word of God and the word of God alone, they're very much like their Lord who said that it is his food. It is his food to do the will of his father. He would rather not eat than not obey. And these are ones who are always an encouragement to teach and to counsel and to just watch as they grow into conformity to the person of Jesus Christ. And yet you also have many hearers to use the word of Jesus who only want him so long as it doesn't cost him anything, so long as he doesn't infringe too much on their own personal desires and he doesn't actually hold them accountable to obey that word. And again, this is the difference every single time. And so your obedience to the words of Jesus Christ is the evidence that your profession is genuine. That is the singular point of this passage. And so if you want to know if you've truly laid a foundation upon this rock called Jesus Christ and his words, then what is it about your life that causes you to believe that Jesus Christ is indeed your master? beyond your profession or mere desire to hear? What makes you think that he is your Lord and that your life is in full submission to what he desires of you? And again, perhaps you will only know this when the trial hits. When it hits, what will you follow? Will you be obedient to his word and what he calls of every single Christian? Or you go down your own path thinking that you and him have some kind of understanding. I hear that one a lot. And so to bring this all back to the beginning, what is your hope for heaven? When you take a step back, the Bible says that our greatest problem right now is our sin. 
It is our sin before a righteous and holy God. Many think that their greatest problem is something in this life, whether it's family issues, money issues, health issues, whatever it might be. But our greatest problem, biblically speaking, is not our trials. It is not the issues that we have to deal with living in a fallen and broken world. But our greatest issue is our sin. And so since our greatest problem is our sin and unrighteousness, the issue is that somehow we need to be made righteous. Right? We need to be made righteous as we stand before that holy and perfect judge. And because he is perfectly righteous, he is one who cannot have even the slightest stain of sin in his presence. And so we need to be made righteous, but the problem is that we can't make ourselves righteous. And so the scriptures state that we need the righteousness of another. Something theologians refer to as alien righteousness, something that is outside of us. We cannot dig deep for this. This is something that exists outside of us. And so we need to be made righteous. But the problem, again, is that we cannot make ourselves righteous. We need this righteousness of another to be credited to us, credited to our account. And so the question for you this morning, if you're still negotiating on these things, is do you yet see or can you yet see that Jesus Christ is your righteousness? Because that will be the all-important question in the judgment. Do you see Jesus Christ as sufficient to appease God's holy wrath against you? Did he truly deal with that on the cross? And if so, then when that wrath comes, this is the promise of the gospel. The promise of the gospel is that your house shall stand. And because it's not been built on some sinking sand of your own self-mustered spirituality or your own pursuits of morality or some institutionalized form of religion, but because you dug deep to secure your hope to that solid rock called Christ. And so this passage declares as well something very important about Jesus. In fact, this is all about what Jesus has done for the sinner. And so the question presented to you this morning is, do you trust by faith, that is, by trusting in a promise? Do you trust by faith the words of Christ, namely that his cross work was sufficient to save you, that on that cross he truly bore away your sin in his body? And that in so doing, he gets your sin, but you get his righteousness, something called the great exchange? And if you say yes, and you truly believe that by faith, you own that promise by belief, and here's the key that so many leave out, and so many preachers fall short on preaching, but if you understand that Jesus is sufficient to save you, then he demands that you now follow him in radical obedience. That you trust his words, not merely to save you, but also sanctify you. to cause you to stand firm in the day of your trial, to persevere until the end, and then to stand firm in that ultimate trial of the judgment. 
And so if you want to know if you're truly following him, then the question to ask is, do you merely come and hear or do you come, hear, and obey? That is the question. This is the same word of James in chapter 1 and verse 21 of his epistle. When he says, therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls, but prove yourself doers of that word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. He wouldn't have had a big church. And so as we finish this very important sermon of Jesus, the call is once again to examine your own life. What does it show? What does it reveal about where you have placed your hope? What does it reveal about who is your true Lord and master and upon what are you building your hope for heaven? Is it religious works? Is it spirituality? Is it the repetition of prayer? Is it your attendance at a church? Or is it faith in the finished work of Christ alone and to which you can and must not add anything? remember, Jesus started the sermon by saying that there are only two kinds of people in the world, right? You've got the blessed and you've got the cursed. And so he closes here with a very vivid illustration of what those two kinds of people do. Both of them are builders. Both of them have houses that look perhaps the same on the outside or at a superficial level. But the difference is that the cursed have been building on sand, whereas the blessed have affixed their foundation to Jesus Christ. And his words. And that is the difference. Both come, both hear, but then only one goes and does. And beloved, that is the one who is blessed. That is the one for whom heaven awaits. For yours is, present tense, yours is right now the kingdom just waiting to come into its fullness. You are not close, but you are in. And so the question is, which one are you? Upon what are you building your spiritual house? That is the question for us to consider. Let's pray. And so Father, thank you as always for the opportunity to spend time in your words Thank you for this word, especially this morning, though it is a difficult one indeed. I am reminded of the old hymn that our house is built on nothing less but Jesus' blood and righteousness. And on Christ, that solid rock, we stand because all other ground is sinking sand. And so we thank you for your grace. We thank you that you've opened our hearts to Christ, that we have come, that we have heard, and that we have obeyed. And I pray for those this morning who have not yet done this. May they cease from striving, cease from trying to figure out life, figure out heaven in their own strength. But may they come to you and simply find rest. Find rest because this isn't about their own strength, but about the one the strength of the one upon whom they stand. And so I do pray for continued grace to keep us as a church faithful until the end. And where we stand before you with total confidence because our confidence is not in ourselves, but it's in the finished work of Christ alone. 
that he is our righteousness, that he is our hope and our stay. And so cause us to endure until that day. Keep your word before us always as that great treasure by which we shall persevere. And in a time in which so much seems to continue to become increasingly dark, may your word continue to light our path. May we trust that that no matter the trial, the circumstance, no matter what the enemy seeks to assault us with, that the purity of your word is what keeps us grounded. It'll keep us hopeful, but more than anything else, it'll keep us faithful. And so may on that final day, every single person in this room, including all of our, our little ones, may they hear those most glorious words of well done, my good and faithful servant. That is our hope. That is our great desire. And we know it is possible because of Jesus Christ. So we thank you for your love and we thank you for your grace. And may you be honored as we now sing praises for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.